I want to welcome you out. Uh, we're beginning a brand new Sunday school series uh, 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 on the power of habits. Uh, and uh, we are glad that you're here. And maybe uh, this is a uh, beginning of, of coming. And so they say if you want to change your life, you start by changing one thing in your life. And coming to Sunday school would be a good start. And, uh, and so uh, we're going to uh, examine this from the Word of God, and of course, when you deal with a subject like habits, this is more than information uh, that every one of us here have habits. Check, check, check. Whether they're good or bad, we all have them. That's just simply a part of uh, who we are as human beings, and the purpose of our study is to figure out how to break bad ones and establish good ones. And... Uh, uh, you know, maybe a way that we could start today, as I set this up, is, you know, in your own, whether you're keep taking notes electronically or you're, um, you're writing things down, if you were to just write inside of your Bible three habits you would like to break and three habits you would like to establish. Go ahead. Just take, take a moment. We'll pause while I put this thing back on. If you could write down somewhere, you know, where you could mark it out. You could put it down on paper. Three habits I'd like to break. Now you say, well, Pastor Ruby, I don't have any bad habits. You might start with pride. That might be a good one. And, uh, and, um, and say, okay, three things that, that I would like to change. And then there were three things that I would like to establish in my life. Things that I, I know I should do and I do from time to time. But every time, it's like I have to fight to do them. So uh, go ahead. I'm going to pause here. And don't worry, we're not going to ask you to read these out loud. We're not going to put them on the PowerPoint or anything like that. But it, it, it give you a chance to understand how important a study like this is. Okay. Pausing for a minute. A few more seconds. Now, if you said, uh, I'll get around to it later, then you might want to write down procrastination uh, as one of them. Okay, so let's talk about habits. And uh, in these type of Sunday schools, I, I, I establish a syllabus uh, of where we're going. I need to know where I'm headed. But, uh, you know, I don't like rushing through things. I, I have to remind myself this isn't a a college course and we're coming to the end of the semester and I really like the the contribution and I believe that a, a, the best teaching doesn't come from over here from up here it comes from people sharing their own insights their own experiences uh, and a lot of times they're sharing something that somebody else uh, really grabs a hold of and it helps us to take this out of the ivory tower into the real world uh, of, of habits and establishing them uh, in our lives. And so let me begin with a quote here. We all set up, give me your thumbs up here. We all set up, uh, start with Tommy Lasorda. Tommy Lasorda there. And uh, if you don't know who Tommy Lasorda was, he was the manager of the uh, Los Angeles Dollars. Uh, dollars. I, that, that's their, that's a, a little Freudian slip about their payroll. But he said this, Los Angeles Dodgers manager Tommy Lasorda describes his battle with bad habits. I took a pack of cigarettes from my pocket, stared at it, and said, Who's stronger, you or me? 
The answer was me. I quit smoking. Then I took a vodka martini and said to it, who's stronger, you or me? Again, the answer was me. I quit drinking. Then I decided to go on a diet. I looked at a big plate of linguine with clam sauce and said, who's stronger, you or me? And a little clam looked up and answered, I am. I can't beat linguine. Amen. Now, maybe we can increase the size of the font there on that PowerPoint. A little easier to read. You know, um, that's, isn't that the crazy thing about habits? Why is it that there are some things that we can break and other things we can't? Are, are you with me this morning? You know what I mean? That how come someone can drop three packs of cigarettes a, a day for 30 years and then boom, they get saved and delivered a little, little uh, sample. How many people here uh, were a, a smoked? And I don't mean like once a week. I mean that you were a full-on, at least one pack a day a smoker. Let me lift your, okay, you know. And, and so it's a miracle. These folks are free. They're delivered. God did something in their lives. Each one of them, you could, you could uh, uh, talk to them and, and, and uh, you know, and they'll tell you probably was, and anybody here who was a full-on uh, a smoker, uh, care to share your own testimony of, of, of deliverance and freedom? Okay, Charlene, and then Doris. Doris used to smoke. Okay, Charlene. Okay, we got to get the mics on. I got saved in 1991, and I struggled with smoking. I would go out in the parking lot and smoke. My husband at, at the time didn't smoke, and he hated it. And I remember that I would come in and out of church, and that was the reason, because I smoked and I couldn't quit. And one time I went on an outreach, and I left the bunch of people to go smoke, and the person I had witnessed to saw me. And I quit coming for a long, long time. And then I'm going to cry. <laughs> then one day when I was not coming to church, I was missing God so much. And I just said, God, I don't want to smoke anymore. I want to be able to live for you the way you want me to live without shame. And so I told him, if you'll take this away from me without withdrawal, because I couldn't handle the withdrawal, that I would live for him the rest of my life. And that Sunday, well, Saturday night, I washed all my clothes I cleaned my house, threw out everything that was there, and I quit smoking, and I never had any withdrawal. God did what I asked him to do. Hallelujah. Amen. Okay, hold on. Hold on, Charlene. Okay. How long, how long did you smoke? 32 years. And how, how, how often? I mean, how, how many? How Three packs a day. Three packs a day. Yeah. I'm paying my rent now. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that powerful? That's powerful, more than you know. Now, people here who smoke understand and appreciate that. That's a, a serious deliverance. People spend all kinds of money. They have all kinds of new chemical cigarettes and smokeless cigarettes and nicotine gum and patches and uh, things that they're doing to get people. And here's somebody that, that touches God and delivered. And, you know, here we are 23 years down the road. So that's powerful. Doris? Um, yeah, I, I, when I was in second grade is when I started. And we used to go, I grew up 
in the bowling alley, my brother's bowling in the bowling alleys and all, and um, I used to go when you could smoke inside, and I used to go up to the little ashtray things that they had there, and I'd pick up the butts, and I'd go out in the back of the bowling alley, and I'd light the butts, and I, I would smoke what was ever left on the cigarettes. So that's when I started, and it's very hard with a large family, because in, in your neighborhood, you had to hide, because otherwise someone would tell on you, you know. But little by little, I, I increased and I increased, and for, for me, it was probably like seven years, and I remember my brother, my brother Bruce is the only one that knew that smoked, and I'd always hear him, you know, do that gross cough in the morning and everything, and um, I didn't realize that that's what would end up happening to me. And so I, I would start smoking, and um, I, at one point I got, I got myself up to three packs a day, and then uh, on the weekends I would do four. And it was just, for me, it was more like a, not even necessarily a, I was addicted to the menthol, but it was like a cool thing, too. I always had to have a cigarette in my hand and be cool, kind of, you know. And I remember one time I was at work, and I, I was coughing so badly, I was like coughing up a lung, I had to go to the emergency, um, like well-med kind of a thing over there in the East Coast. And the doctor, he, was, uh, he looked at me, he said, uh, can I ask you something? Do you, by chance, do you smoke? And I looked at the guy like, yeah. And he's like, uh, I recommend that you stop. I'm like, yeah, right, whatever. You know, and I was this attitude, like, you can get somebody to stop smoking. So I left, didn't go back, and went to the club, and I went and stopped at the store and bought a pack of cigarettes. And it was just this thing, like, I have to because it's a cool thing to do. When I got saved, I think, I'm not even 100% sure, but it was, I believe it was right two weeks after when I got filled with the Holy Ghost. And... You know, I don't even remember the last time I picked up a cigarette. I was like, that was it. I was like, like Shoshone was saying, I had no withdrawals. I always tell people that. I was like, give your life to Jesus, man. He'll deliver you just like that. It was like totally from three packs a day to nothing. Okay. It's total deliverance. Thank God. And so these are powerful. And the truth is that we could spend the rest of the morning people giving testimonies of habits that were broken, broken at the point of salvation or baptized in the Holy Ghost or as our sister said, just being on an outreach and just kind of coming to grips with, you know, I'm a Christian and I'm telling others, but at the same time I'm being, you know, in bondage to this. And, and yet for all of that, and everybody here has those testimonies, and why is it in this area I can't seem to get deliverance? Or I can't seem to break this habit. I can drop a three-pack of cigarettes. That's a lot of cigarettes. And yet, over here, just like Tommy Lasorda says, I can stop smoking, I can stop drinking, but I can't stop overeating. And beginning to understand this, this, this mystery of human nature because we all identify with it. Uh, go ahead and put up the next quote there. Somebody said that bad habits are like comfortable beds, easy to get into, hard to get out of. And we laugh because we laugh knowingly. We laugh and we understand how easy it is. You know, here we are in Sunday school this morning and it's good to see you. And, and, and for some of you, you came to me and joked, hey, you know, hey, I'm here, you know. And, and, and it's because, and it's, it's only because, uh, it, it, and all the reason, it's like nobody says, yeah, I'm not going to Sunday school. I hate donuts. And I'm, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want, I don't like the teaching. None of that. Most people would say, you know, I probably should go. I need to go. But yet we slip into a pattern and then it's hard to escape that pattern. It's hard to break ourselves out of it. And so our launch pad verse that we'll be reading at the beginning of every one of these Sunday schools is Luke 4, verse 16 through 19. And, uh, and I want you to uh, uh, consider with me the issues of habit as we talk about 
uh, habits. This is our introduction this morning. And then we talk about what a habit is. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the power of small things because that's the thing about a habit. Habits come from doing little things over and over again. And then we're going to talk about how to break a habit. And then we're going to talk about how to establish some good habits. I mean, very practical. Uh, Sunday school and your uh, contribution is very, very important. Uh, so let's begin reading Luke 4, verse 16 through 19. And uh, we'll have uh, uh, Gilbert, our uh, designated uh, Sunday school reader, uh, read that for us this morning. And he came to Nazareth, for he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Okay, so uh, let's begin by, first of all, establishing that we all have habits. We all have them. We are creatures of habit. That is who we are. And this is a fascinating feature of the human personality is that uh, we are, on one hand, sovereign. We have, we're, we, we have a free will. We have the ability to exercise our will. But then so much of our life is the product, not of choices we make consciously, but things that we do that we don't even realize we're doing. And so on one hand, God has made us to be sovereign, free moral agents. On the other hand, so much of our life, Duke University says that 40% of our lives every day are the product of habits. That 40% are things that we don't even think about. See, when you got up this morning, if you think about your routine this morning, it wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it. You basically did what you do every Sunday. You just, you, you, I, I don't know what you do. I don't even want to think about what you do. But, uh, but the fact is, what, what you, if you think back this morning, how different was this morning from any other morning. It, there's a certain routine. If you have a family, you know, and you have smaller children and you got, and, 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 and we basically do these things in so much of our lives. When you drove here, how many know you can drive right down the same road that you drive every single morning? And so you don't even think, you can't even remember where the red light was or the green light or if you even rode right through the red light, you know, and and, and, and everything is, is so routine. And so here God has invested the tremendous power in our will to be able to make decisions. And yet so much of that is surrendered to unconscious decisions. And so I want to uh, uh, speak for just a minute about willpower and the importance of having a will and that being part of our personality and let me just uh, uh, hand out a few scriptures here. If you want to read, lift your hand. Start over here, Mark chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, Jim, Luke 15, verse 18. Uh, Ramon and uh, uh, Daniel uh, Cortez, Genesis 11, verses 5 and 6. So we will just uh, for a moment offer the disclaimer about the power of the will this morning because we don't want uh, to be just known as a bundle of habits and 
we know that will take us in the wrong direction. And so let's understand that everybody here has a will. Everybody has the power to make choices. And, and if you're going to live for God, you're going to have to engage your will. Mark 5, verse 6. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him. He ran to meet Jesus and fell down before him. So uh, here's the gathering demoniac. I preached a sermon on willpower out of this passage of Scripture not long ago. Here's a man who is uh, filled with demons, a legion of demons. Legion was uh, 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 6,000, was the, uh, a military uh, unit of 6,000 soldiers. This man, Jesus says, what's your name? And the demon said, we are legion. So whether he's referring to 6,000 actual demons or he's referring to the, a, a, a military uh, stronghold uh, that's established in this man, a militant stronghold. Uh, all we know is the man was demon-possessed. And yet, for all of his demons, the man still had the ability to see Jesus from far away, run to him, and fall on his knees and worship him. That that man possessed in him a will. He still had the ability to make a choice. Now, this is important because uh, in this society, we are being told over and over again, we have no choice, okay? That if, if you're uh, born gay, then you're gay. You uh, are once an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. You're a drug addict, you're always a drug addict. And in any particular arena you want, we're being told over and over again that uh, you have just a, a genetic disposition, you know, your DNA, it says this, and this is just who you're going to be, and your hope, and, and, and so they're taking away or eroding the power of the will, and yet this man, for all his problems, was still able to run to Jesus. Last night, Pastor Mitchell uh, did a seminar for pastors and wives on the subject of deliverance and, and and, you know, counseling from people, 50 years of counseling, a lot of insight. And uh, we, he was talking about demon possession and demon oppression and, uh, you know, and, and just about how often when he ministers to people and they, you know, they manifest and, and you know, all this, how much of that is simply a refusal to engage their will. And they, may, and they have to make their choices. You know, they want uh, uh, God to step in and drive the demons out and set them free, but they never want to make the choices that God is expecting them to make. And this causes problems. This man made a choice. And for all the spiritual issues and problems of his life, God was able to help him. Luke 15, verse 18. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I will rise and go to my father. This is the prodigal son. Again, he's got a completely messed up life. He has been stripped of everything. He has no money. He has no job. He has no friends. He's working in a pig pen. He has no dignity. He has nothing except one thing, the power to make a choice. And he makes a choice. He says, you know what? I don't want to live this way. I don't, I don't want to live this way. And he makes his mind up. You, you, you can be here and have absolutely nothing. By your own bad decisions, you can be stripped of everything, but you still have the ability to make a choice. You can still choose God. You can still say, you know what, I, I, God, I want you to help me. And I choose you. And the Bible says he made his way back to his father and he was restored born from the power of a choice. 
It is amazing what men can do when they set their mind to do something. 1903, the Wright brothers, in December of 1903, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, they were able to fly a plane. The first powered flight wasn't a glider. It wasn't done by any other momentum, but simply they were able to create an aircraft that flew for a very short period of time in 1903, 1969, 66 years later, men were on the moon because it's an amazing feature of human personality is the power of the will, the power of making decisions. Genesis 11, 5 and 6. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they pur purpose, propose to do will be withheld from them. Um, what an observation made by God. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. I mean, that, that is God speaking. That mankind has this power that he has deposited in him, a piece of eternity called the soul, the ability to make decisions, and that nothing will be withheld from them. You, you have to understand the world we are heading towards is this right here. Babel is being rebuilt, and it's called digital technology. And, and we don't even understand. Now we're getting these little glimpses of how far-reaching Surveillance goes, their ability to, to know where you are, track human beings, uh, uh, everything, track money, how money moves, people, trans, you know, everything. It would probably freak us out if we knew how much uh, people knew about us. And, uh, and, and yet here's this ancient prophecy. Men, even without God, the, their potential, what they can do. And so we know that in the end, uh, the Bible says there will be nowhere to escape. There will be no way to make a transaction or even to spend money. Uh, you know, we know that all the world is going to be looking at the same event at the same time uh, through technology. I mean, we're headed there, folks. And so men, when they set their mind to something, can do uh, things that are tremendous. But but this is inside of us. I'm just making the case about the willpower. Let me just give you one paragraph. It comes from an interesting book uh, by Miles 60. You want to put that up there. And so I want to read this. I clipped this out of a paragraph of a book that I read years ago called Born to Run. And it's about uh, Scott Jurek, who is the, the greatest uh, ultra marathon runner in the world. These are people who run, you know, 100-mile races. 200-mile races, and, uh, and not only that, but they run like they'll run in the South Pole or they'll run across the Sahara Desert. You have to be crazy to do something like this, and uh, this guy, Scott Jurek, is considered to be the greatest of them, and this paragraph comes from a race uh, called the Badwater Race. It's the most difficult race in America, 118 miles in the summer from Death Valley and you run all the way to Mount Whitney, to the top of Mount Whitney. Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in the contiguous United States. 
it's almost, I think it's 15,000 feet or 16,000 feet. And you start in Death Valley, which is, uh, I, I think, like 1,000 feet below sea level. And it's 120 degrees when the race starts. And it's so hot that the runners have to run on the white stripes because their shoes will melt if they run on the asphalt. And they're covered uh, up and they're, you know, and they're covered in, in lotions to protect their skin and their hats. And, uh, and you run and you run across this desert. Then the last part of the race, you climb three miles on a mountain where by the time you get to the top, it's freezing. 118 miles. And, and so what's happened in this race, just to catch you up to speed, is that he's, he's running this race and only you know, two or three weeks earlier, he had participated in another 100-mile race. I mean, no, when you, when you run a 100-mile race, you're pretty tired two or three weeks later. You've been there, right? And, and so he's pushed himself, but now at mile 60 of this race, he starts heaving, he's, uh, it's, it's, he's burning up, and his body's breaking down. And what has happened is uh, the way these runners do it is as they're running, their, their team, which was his wife and a couple of friends, are in an air-conditioned van driving alongside him so they can feed him liquids. And, and what we pick up the story is he's collapsed on the ground. He's dry heaving. His body's breaking down. And his wife and friends are in the air-conditioned van saying, come on, you can do it. You can do it. Come on. Okay, we pick it up. By mile 60, Scott was vomiting and shaking. His hands dropped to his knees. Then his knees dropped to the pavement. He collapsed by the side of the road, lying in his own sweat and spittle. Leah, that's his wife, and his friends didn't bother trying to help him up. They knew there was no voice in the world more persuasive than the one inside Scott's own mind. Scott lay there thinking about how hopeless it all was. He wasn't even halfway done, and Sweeney was already too far ahead of him for him to see. Ferg Hawk was halfway up the Father Crowley lookout, and Scott, lookout, Scott hadn't even started the climb yet. And the wind, it was like running into the blast of a jet engine. A couple of miles back, Scott had tried to cool off by sinking his entire head and torso into a giant cooler full of ice and holding himself underwater until his lungs were screaming. As soon as he got out, he was roasting again. There's no way, Scott told himself. You're done. You would have to do something totally sick to win this thing now. Sick like what? Like starting all over again. Like pretending you just woke up from a great night's sleep and the race hasn't even started yet. You would have to run the next 80 miles as fast as you've ever run 80 miles in your life. No chance, jerker. Yeah, I know. For 10 minutes, Scott lay like a corpse. Then he got up and did it, shattering the Badwater record with a time of 24 hours and 36 minutes. Does that make you want to go and get in the next 5K? <laughs> but I mean, when I read that, I thought, I mean, that's the power of will. I mean, to make yourself get up when your body's breaking down to run 80 miles in Death Valley in the summer and then they climb three miles to the highest point in, North, in the United States where it's freezing in record time because of, well, I mean, physically, obviously, the man's in shape, but it's, this is not physical. This is something in him, his ability to set his will and to make a choice 
and say, I'm going to do that. So there's that side of our personality that you do have choices. You can do it. If I could sneak in a little, a little uh, uh, conviction this morning is that there are people here right now, you feel like all of life is arrayed against you. Okay, you're in your own bad water right now. You can make a choice. You can set your will. Say, well, you don't understand how bad it is, Pastor Ruby. You don't know my marriage and our finances and this thing and that thing. You can make a choice. Okay, you can say, I'm going to get up and I'm going to run the next 80 miles faster than I've ever run 80 miles before. You can do that. So that, that is something God has invested in us. It's called a free will. Okay, having said that and understanding that, we now move to the other picture that is here. And that is that we are not just product of choices we make, but we are product of choices we make that we don't even know we're making. That there's another part of our personality that is simply the result of habit. There's the conscience choice, the decision, I'm going to do this, I, I need to do this. For some of you, it was, I'm coming to Sunday school, I'm going to set my alarm a little earlier, I'm going to do things a little bit different, and I'm changing up the game plan because I need to be here. There are other people, you did what you do every single Sunday morning. You didn't, you didn't, you didn't have to tell, you know, honey, we're going to get up early because you're, you're always early. And you just did what you always do. It wasn't hard to do it. You didn't have to remind yourself. You didn't have to write little sticky notes to yourself. And uh, you, just, you just, here I am. That's I, I, what I did. And so, but that's true for all of life, that there are decisions that we have to make. And then there are other people, those decisions just simply come easy. So it's almost as if you made no decision at all. See, every day we exercise our will, but there comes a point that by repetition, we no longer have to make a decision. Years of action have created a momentum so that we do those things without necessarily thinking about it. One good example would be a road, a, a Loop 410. I, I moved to San Antonio in 1988, uh, and I, I'm sure there are people here that remember Anybody here remember before Loop 410 was here? Give Mike Gilbert the microphone. And so, you know, uh, Gilbert, I, I, I wanted to just talk about that for a minute. I know you know this from reading about it in history books, but uh, what was it like? It, it was pretty strange because back then we didn't have 410. We had Loop 13, which was military drive. And that's the street that went uh, halfway around the city. And that was our big loop. We wanted to go, and let's go out in the country. So we got on military drive and just followed it all the way around. And you know how military drive is today. Well, 410 wasn't even a, a, maybe just a thought, but that was our big loop was military drive. But back then it was called Loop 13. You know, th what they say is that a lot of times a, a, a road, a, a major road started out as a footpath. And then from a footpath, 
they started to ride a horse, uh, horses and livestock on it and they would trample the ground more and so it became the, the place to go because instead of having to walk through the brush, you would just walk down this path and so you would w- wear the path and then pretty soon it was horses and then it was wagons and everything else was more difficult and so by simply going down this path over and over again that when it came time for the city fathers to actually pave a road when the automobiles came along this was already paved out so then they paved the road and then the the cars began to go and so businesses were established along the side and then when they began to plan further they said well we're going to now enlarge this and expand this and a lot of times when you look at a a large road for six-lane road what you're really looking at was a long long time ago somebody just started to walk down a certain path And just simply over time, it just became the default method of transportation. And so that's a pretty good picture of what a habit is. A habit is a product of having made the same decision over and over again until it becomes a default. It just becomes what we do. And now we don't even think about it. When I, got on, when I came over here, I just get on Marbach Road and I drive three miles up the road to the church. I don't think about it. I don't have to plug in, you know, uh, uh, Google Maps and put in the church. Now, there are places that I've never been where I, I have to put that in and it's got to tell me how to get there. It's got to show me. I have to plan. And then that uh, nagging voice of that electronic thing saying, turn left here turn right, you blew it, turn around and go back. And, uh, and that uh, electronic voice tells me, because I, I haven't been down that path, but paths that I go down normally, you don't even think it becomes default. And the idea is that this happens to us in life that something becomes so normal. You talk to a, a, someone who smokes cigarettes and they can tell you that before they even, they had a cigarette in their mouth before they realized that I'm smoking. The first thing they did in the morning or with a cup of coffee or whatever that you don't even realize you're doing this. This is true with grooming. How many know you can develop um, ticks, body ticks? I mean, ticks, not ticks, but ticks. You know, body ticks where, you know, you don't realize that you're, Right? How many know what I'm talking about? And you don't even know you're doing it. It's not your, it's just, it, 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 what happens is it starts to happen and, and, and you don't even know that you're, you're doing that. And, and you may not realize, but we all have them. Give uh, Patrick Harris the mic. So one of the things about um, tennis uh, uh, is that uh, tennis players, the the, the the best tennis players in the world, when you watch them play, I understand that their strategy and everything else, but these guys and girls have been playing so long that so much of what happens in a volley is they're not thinking. They're just reacting. And so, Patrick, maybe you can, uh, Patrick is a tennis player, maybe you can contribute to that. Um, yeah, if you, if you talk to any, like, professional tennis coach or something, they'll tell you that, 80, 80 to 90% of the game is pure mental. And um, if you watch any of these guys that are playing on TV, they do the exact same thing every single match. Um, in between games, if you watch them when they sit down, they'll put their towel in the same spot, they put their water in the same spot. You know, everything 
it's kind of, it's like you said, it's just a, a pure habit. And so you develop patterns, um, and that's basically how you figure out how to beat your opponent, is once you figure out their pattern and their habits during a match, that's how you exploit it. And then you, it's basically just, it's almost like a chess match. You just kind of figure out where they're going, and then you use your knowledge to, to kind of try to outsmart them. They, uh, they say that in, like in a, in a world-class tennis that the ball is moving so fast, if you had to sit there and think about what you were doing, you couldn't do it. It's all, all reaction. And so that's why many times these kids start when they're three, four years old, they're playing tennis, because what they're doing is they're ingraining in them just reactions. And so you're there, and you're sticking your... your, your uh, racket you're moving you don't even know it's like saying oh wow here comes the ball i need to go over here and hit it with a little top spin it's it's if you do all that it's past you so everything is do it again and again and again until it's ingrained in you and you are now just reacting because you have created this this habit or this response and and you function and you and and they do this at an extremely high level i i read a very very interesting book Actually, not the whole book, but an expert, uh, an excerpt of the book. Uh, and it was talking about the sports gene. And it, it was, uh, I mentioned in a conference sermon about uh, the best hitters in the world. You know, these guys that uh, they mentioned, Luis Pujols, these guys, uh, you know, these pitchers are throwing the ball 100 miles an hour, a tiny little ball. And they're throwing it. And not only are they throwing it, but they're throwing it so that the ball dips or it goes down or it goes off or you know and these men are there and when that ball is coming a hundred miles an hour zipping and moving around the best batters in the world what they've done is they've practiced so much that they by the time that ball's being let go of the pitcher's hand he's already decided where that ball's going to be and he swings right there it's the only way you can do it. You can't, you can't wait, and, and it's just happening too fast. So and as soon as it let go of his hand, that, that, that batter, somehow intuitively, because having done this thousands and thousands of times in a cage and, and playing baseball since he was a kid, he already knows, and he begins to swing where he thinks that ball is going to be. And if he's good, 350 out of 1,000 times, he's right. And the, all of that is understanding, you know what, I can train my body. I can create a habit by repetition that makes me good at something I want to be good at. Let me say that again. Whether in the arena of sports or anywhere else, you're looking at people who say, I can train my body to be good at something I want to be good at. And that's true for all of us. You wrote down in your, in your side, your Bible, three habits you want to establish, three things you would like to, to do. You can do that. That's the point of this study is to say, wait a minute, let me understand how God created me. Yes, he gave me a will to make decisions. But if I make the same right decisions again and again and again, then there will come a point where it's not a struggle to make those, to do those things. It will become normal for you to do them and then to not do them will feel abnormal or to feel strange. A definition of habit is an acquired pattern of behavior 
that has become almost involuntary because of repetition. Okay. That what we're talking about here is a pattern of behavior that can be acquired and become almost involuntary because of repetition. So we know this is true. Okay. You can have a bad habit that you say, I don't want to do this. You can come to the altar of God, help me. I don't want to do this. And, and, and yet do it because it's involuntary because you feel like, you know, it, it was too easy to do. Why isn't it harder? It should be harder for me to do. How come it seems like it's easier to do the wrong thing than it is to do the right thing? And a lot of times we don't understand that what, what's happened is that this, we have created a habit that we develop habits and default actions that we don't even think about. We just do them. Anybody have anything right here? Gilbert, Mr. Medrano, let's move our uh, comments, make them brief. Anybody else? And Marty. When I was first diagnosed with kidney renal failure and I spoke with the doctor, he told me, you have three choices. You can either take dialysis, you can take diet, or you can take death. So I said, okay, I'll take the diet. <laughs> Little did I know what I was in for. Because basically what they did is me being Hispanic and all the food that I love to eat, they basically put me on a vegetarian diet. The first five years were the most hardest years I had to go through because I had to deny myself my rice and bean, my enchiladas, my guacamole, my steaks, pork chops, all of that. Okay, stop, Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of that I couldn't have. So for me... As much as I enjoy cooking and eating, it was a tremendous mental battle for me to stay away from these foods. And one time I decided, well, it couldn't be too bad because we were celebrating my daughter's birthday. So we went to the hungry farmer and I had a steak. Small one, but I had a steak. Oh, God, I was sick for days afterwards. After that, I said, no more. So after about five years, like you say, it became a habit. It wasn't a, a challenge anymore because I knew what the consequences were going to be. So it was easy for me to say, okay, stay away from this, stay away from that. So now, even today, I've got my new kidney. I can have anything I want, but I still find myself avoiding foods that I know I'm not supposed to have because it's still up here in my mind. Like, no, no, you can't have that. You can't have that. You can't have that. So now I'm trying to break that habit to go and enjoy myself <laughs> again. <laughs> Come up for prayer. We'll pray. And you go eat a chocolate fudge sundae. Oh, come on. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mr. Medrano. Yes. I was going to say, uh, just like, uh, uh, my goodness, just like uh, ping pong. I like ping pong. It's too much like tennis player. And uh, I love ping pong. And I'm always, I like the word that you said, Pastor, creative. I'm always creating a way how to change hands with a paddle. And I can try to do it so fast that I don't have to move too much because see, I can be challenging and, and know how the, where the, where the little ball comes at me. And I'm practicing on this, these days. And uh, the other thing that I love to do is try to get family together. And each one will have a, a ping pong table in their home. They can practice. They can get good. And one day we can all get together in a park and play and 
compete against each other and laugh and, and enjoy what God has given us. All right. All right, Mr. Jono. I'd like to see that changing hands at the ping pong table. I need to learn that. Marty? Uh, just real quick, it's funny about um, Gilbert's comment because I was reading the other day about like, diet and nutrition. And they said, you know, so much uh, salt and just sugars in our food that it would literally take six weeks of just eating bland vegetables to desensitize our taste buds. So, still that. Okay, all right, all right. Okay, that's it. That is true. How, how it's ingrained. Dan Yoder here, real quick, and Pete. I was just thinking about, you know, my military career because I did get to go over to Saudi, Saudi uh, Arabia and Iraq. And, uh, you know, uh, the military is, they try to instill habits too. And so, you know, you go over and you kind of interact with some of the third world, you know, military um, uh, things. And there's like a distinct, you know, difference, you know, as far as the appearance, the uniform, and the military tries to instill this, you know, uh, a, a, a sort of a bearing and then you're around these other military groups and it's like they're a little bit I don't know looser or something and then just in you know uh, I served in the the medical career and so you know um, just comparing the military um, uh, medical people once in a while I'd have to go to the other side of the base and you're around you know the uh, uh, security police and stuff and uh, they're you know very sharp and very detailed about all the things that they do and it's just it's very apparent I remember I was overseas and there were some people in civilian clothes and they were very uh, specific and they knew what they were doing and everything and they were they were escorting I think an ambassador well, later on, the light went on, and they were like special forces that weren't in uniform. But, I mean, just watching them, you knew right away. That's a good point. Let me ask a question there. How many of you that served in the military feel like, even to this day, you carry some of the habits that you were, were put in you? Let me see your hand. Lift up your hand. Hold it there just for a second, okay? That something was put in you. When, when, when you served, uh, and it's a lot of time, most people go in when they're pretty young, and, and you get these things in, ingrained in you by repetition. You know, it's always interested me that, you know, I remember uh, a story from the early days of our boot camp where there was a, a young man who came along, he was a teenager, and uh, he went through the boot camp, and on Saturday morning, uh, back in those days, I think we'd come home on Friday night, and that Saturday morning, his mother, who didn't come to church, called a woman in our church who had brought him and said she was concerned about her son because at uh, uh, six o'clock in the morning, uh, he jumped up out of bed, ran in his chonies to the front yard and stood there on the grass. <laughs> you know that, that it, uh, it worked. And so, uh, so let's look at this verse here, our text. And why we chose, because in this text, there are two very interesting uh, pictures here about the power of a habit. The first one is in Luke 4.16, Luke 4.16, where uh, the scripture says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The, the word custom is what we're interested in. It's the word ethos. It's where we get our word ethics from. And it means a culture or a philosophy or the idea of something that has been ingrained in him. 
Okay, this was Jesus' custom. Jesus was in the habit of going to church, to synagogue. This was ingrained in him. Jesus didn't like, am I going to go today? I don't know if I want to go today. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know. It wasn't a debate. There was no struggle. There was no, well, what, am I going to go today? You know, it wasn't anything like that. It was, it was something that was ingrained in him, and, and it's important. It's always interesting with parents. You raise your kids in church, and one day you say to your kids, we're not going to church. Your kid's going to flip on you. Or you're going to drive right past your church off to another one for all whatever things are driving your heart. Your kids are, what's going on here? Because it's their custom. It's their habit. It's a tradition. You have put something in them, which I believe is a good thing. You've taught them that Sunday mornings belong to God, that Sundays are, are God's days. And, and you're putting these things in them. You're creating an ethic that you will want them to have when they become adults and they're going to make their own lives and have their own families. As a parent, we have the ability to put this in them. Uh, somebody get to Proverbs 22.6 real quickly. Proverbs 22.6. Robert, get that. You, you, you have that ability to create these powerful momentum or traditions in your children. Proverbs, go ahead and read that, Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. See, that verse isn't a guarantee. That verse is not, hey, you raise your kids to be Christian, they're going to be Christian. I've had parents whose kids aren't serving God, and they're like, Proverbs 22.6, you know, we raised them in church, and they're not serving God. This is not that. What it's saying is create an ethic in your child about the things of God, because even now it will steal. Stay with them. I've talked to parents whose kids aren't serving God, and these kids will go to church, and I, you know, you know I, I, somebody told me a story about a, a son or daughter that's, uh, you know, they're not serving God, but they went to this church, and the song leader had an earring, and they're all offended, you know, this guy has an earring, and, and never do that in our fellowship, you know, and, and it's like, <laughs> you're gonna say, man, you know, but, but, you know, but what it is is an ethic has been put in them a philosophy, a perspective. And the Bible says to parents, listen, when your kids are small, you're putting things in them. You put in them whether church is important or whether it's not important. So Jesus, his custom was. Now in our text, he's 30 years old now and he's going to synagogue and and it says this was what he always did. This was a powerful force for him. And so, you, you know, if I could just mention here a couple things. Um, teach your kids hard work. Don't, you know, you can ingrain in them study habits. If your kids are in school, then they need to be in school. And you need to make sure you need to pay attention to how they're doing and, and sit them down at night and ask them, what did you learn today? Or are you prepared for this test? Did you get your homework done? Have them read to you. Find out if they know how to read. You want an angry 17-year-old? Don't, don't teach them to read. Nothing like an illiterate that's very, very frustrated. And I'll tell you what they do is they get mad at their parents for not making them learn how to read. And so you've got to ingrain these things in them. How to handle money. You want to ingrain a spiritual life. You want to teach them respect. And so you, parents, you have that ability to train your child and create these 
customs in their life. Every parent hears, your children are small, absolutely curses are real, and there's all the world out there they have to deal with, but you have the ability to train them and create these customs and instill an ethic inside of them. Now, there's a dark side to habits. In fact, when we use the word habit, most people don't associate it with something good. They associate it with something bad. Kick the habit. Break the habit. Luke 4.18. Now listen to these words. Now the Bible says Jesus' custom was going to synagogue. Now Jesus speaks and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so here's Jesus' view of humanity. Men are poor, brokenhearted, captive, blind, and oppressed. And just as Jesus had positive habits, tending the synagogue, now he tells us men have bad habits they must be liberated from. Set the captives free to liberate those who are oppressed. And so just as habits were good for Jesus and positive and created an ethic, on the other side now, here's mankind bound by habits, chained by habits, captive by habits that he has come now to liberate them from. You know, I, I, people with good habits really can help people with bad habits. And, and so you see this same dynamic of human personality in this little verse of Scripture in, in its positive sense and also in its negative sense. That the same feature of our personality that can say, you know what, I can become disciplined so that I can read my Bible, I can pray, I can go to church, I can work hard, I can handle money right, and... and, and that I can have those things in me and become so much a part of me that I'm not having to struggle to do them. The reality is that the same part of our personality can cause us to do the wrong thing without even thinking about it and create bondages so that we can't seem to break out of them. Put up the quote from Clovis Chapel there. He said, it's easier to find a man who never sinned than to find a man who never sinned twice. That's the power of habits. Okay, we're going to have to stop right here. The habit we're into now is going to Sunday school two weeks in a row. Okay, we're going to stop right here. The Lord bless you.